This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Almost 40% of Wisconsin's local health department leaders have left their jobs since March. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that 33 out of the state's 86 local health departments and boards have lost their leaders since last spring. Now that includes the state's top health department, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. The DHS has cycled through three leaders since the pandemic began. According to an ongoing investigation by the Associated Press, 300 public health leaders have resigned from their roles in the past 18 months. A memo from the legislature's nonpartisan reference bureau finds that state and federal laws didn't prevent Madison election officials from providing election records to state auditors. That memo is at odds with one issued by the legislature's attorneys that found Madison's refusal to turn over records was, quote, arguably reasonable. The audit in question was conducted by the state's legislative audit bureau, which issued its final report on last year's presidential election. The Audit Bureau noted that officials in Madison, Milwaukee County, and the town of Little Samico did not allow auditors to actually hold the ballots, citing guidance from the U.S. Department of Justice. According to the Associated Press, the Reference Bureau's memos determines that state law gives state auditors total access to all records and that federal guidelines don't prohibit election officials from handing over election records. A planned snowmobile route through Blue Mound State Park has been temporarily shut down by an Iowa County judge. The snowmobile route has been the subject of an ongoing legal battle between the state's Department of Natural Resources and a volunteer park support group. The Friends of Blue Mound State Park argue that the new trail would disrupt and damage sensitive habitats in the 1,100-acre park. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that work on the trail, which would connect the Military Ridge State Trail with county trails in the north, was slated to begin on Friday. Now, the halt on the project is temporary and litigation over the issue is ongoing, but the temporary halt likely means that the earliest the new trail could open would be next winter. Police in La Crosse have arrested three young adults for allegedly damaging the sculpture of a giant blue baby breaking out of an egg. The blue baby in question is located by the La Crosse City Hall. The sculpture was a gift from La Crosse's sister city in Freiburg, Germany. The head went missing on September 12th and was found outside of a residence the following day. Charges ran from felony theft to citations for damage. And the Centers for Disease Control maps transmission data of coronavirus transmission, and all of Wisconsin's counties are considered to have high transmission rates. Nearly 80% of the counties in the nation are back to having high transmission rates. And the CDC recommends that counties with substantial or high transmission of COVID-19 should ask people to wear masks in indoor public settings. Wisconsin health officials reported more than 2,500 new COVID-19 cases Tuesday, which increased the seven-day rolling average for new cases for the first time in over two weeks. And as Halloween approaches this weekend, a reminder that FreakFest 2021 is canceled due to COVID-19. 
And now on to today's top stories. input on the state's redistricting process. The legislative and congressional voting maps were introduced by Republicans last week, and Governor Tony Evers says that he plans to veto the GOP's proposals unless significant changes are made. Our producer, Jonah Chester, has the story. Today was the only scheduled public hearing on the Republicans' district maps before the legislature votes on them next month. The hearing began around 9 a.m. and was still ongoing as of 5.30 this evening. Once passed by the legislature, the maps will go on to Governor Tony Evers, who has indicated that he plans to veto the Republican proposals. After that, the issue will almost certainly head to the courts as part of a decennial tradition in Wisconsin politics. Redistricting comes once every 10 years in line with returns from the U.S. Census. Last time around, in 2011, Republicans secretly drafted maps that would ensure their dominance in the legislature. They're looking to maintain that dominance this time around by basing their new maps on the ones drawn a decade ago. Princeton University's gerrymandering project gave all three Republican-drawn maps for the Senate, Assembly, and Congress an F. Robert Yablon, an associate professor of law at UW-Madison and a member of the UW's Elections Research Center, explained to lawmakers part of what caused that failing grade. The maps do generally, generally avoid cartoonishly contorted districts, but the districts are less compact than they could be. By law, voting districts should be as geographically compact as possible. Researchers with the Princeton Gerrymandering Project analyzed hundreds of thousands of computer generated legislative and congressional maps for Wisconsin and a substantial portion of those maps had better compactness scores using established metrics. These maps do not prioritize sound redistricting principles, principles that experts and the broader public deem vital. Instead, these maps serve first and foremost to perpetuate for another decade the highly skewed maps that we've had in this state since 2011. Senator Lena Taylor, a Democrat from Milwaukee, says that the current maps disproportionately disenfranchise black voters and disregard provisions set forward in the Voting Rights Act, or VRA. We are clearly in a time where we can change what happened in 2011. The maps before us are in violation of the VRA. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, one of the co-sponsors of the proposed maps, defended them today, arguing that they fall well within legal boundaries. Wisconsin's redistricting debate will almost certainly wind up mired in the courts, and Republicans and Democrats have spent the past several months jockeying for a legal poll position. Democrats want to push the issue before federal courts. Republicans, meanwhile, want the issue to stay in state courts, pushing for it to eventually be decided by the conservative-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court. A nonpartisan People's Maps Commission created by Governor Tony Evers has also put forward a batch of proposed maps. But the Republican-controlled legislature is under no obligation to take up their proposals, although Speaker Voss says Republicans factored some of the commission's feedback into the GOP proposals. Also in political news today, Racine County Sheriff Christopher Schmeling accused the state's bipartisan elections commission of breaking election law. According to the Associated Press, Schmeling, a Trump supporter, alleges that the commission issued improper voting guidance to nursing home residents. He's asking the state's Department of Justice to investigate the case. 
Last spring, the Six-Person Elections Commission, which is split evenly between Republicans and Democrats, voted 5-1 to one to keep poll workers out of nursing homes to prevent spreading the coronavirus. Nursing home residents were instead told to mail in their absentee ballots. A report issued last week by the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau found that the commission broke the law when it issued that order. In response, top legislative Republicans, including Assembly Speaker Voss, are calling for the resignation of Megan Wolf, the Elections Commission's administrator. Wolf is not a voting member of the commission, and her confirmation to the role saw unanimous support from Senate Republicans in 2019. In a written statement issued today, Wolf wrote that, quote, Despite the current political firestorm, I will continue to apply my full focus on the important work of serving all Wisconsin's voters and local election officials. It would be irresponsible to spend any energy engaging a blatantly partisan and coordinated attempt to baselessly challenge the integrity of democracy in our great state, unquote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Madison East High School is getting a change in leadership. Again. Sally Pittman has the story. Madison East High School principal Sean Levy is leaving his position and headed to an administrative job within the district. The change was announced to families yesterday via email. The same email also pointed to an action plan to support students' learning outcomes and social-emotional needs. Levy will be replaced by interim principal Mickey Smith who has served as an assistant principal in the Madison School District for two decades, 11 of those at East High. She'll be East High's third principal in just two years and the first black woman in history to lead a Madison High School. Levy will become the director of secondary multi-tiered support and scheduling. The change comes after students at East and other Madison schools held walkouts two weeks ago to protest the administration's handling of an alleged sexual assault and sexual reporting guidelines. They also called for Levy to leave his position. Mr. Levy is out here. Are you not missing your instructional time? Yeah! Mr. Levy seems to care more about us missing class than he does the I'm glad he's in a crowd and not atop the steps or anything. Um, he can be out here all he wants, but I hope he's listening, right? I hope he's actually taking heed to what we're saying. And that after this, that he actually, you know, decides to hold himself accountable and start taking action on our demands. The morning of the first walkout at East on Wednesday, October 13th, Levy sent an email to families apologizing for how he responded to a question about the handling of sexual misconduct during a recent assembly. At a walkout two days later, students at East High called for clearer sexual misconduct guidelines for both students and teachers. They told WORT that issues in handling sexual assault and harassment extended beyond one alleged incident. They also listed demands for change. MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamans did not return a request for comment about the principal change or the action plan. Mickey Smith will serve as East's interim principal for the remainder of the school year. The district says more information on the hiring process for a permanent East High principal will come later in the school year. 
And in other MMSD news, James Madison Memorial High School may soon be Val Phillips Memorial High School. Earlier this week, a renaming committee recommended the change. It would honor noted African-American attorney, politician, and activist Val Phillips, who had many firsts in Wisconsin history. She was the first African-American woman to graduate from UW Law School, the first African-American woman to serve on the Milwaukee Common Council, and the first African-American judge in Wisconsin. According to the Capital Times, the school board is set to make a final decision in November. If the change is approved, Val Phillips will have another first. She'll be the first black woman to have her name on a Madison High School. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sholly Pittman. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum finds that Wisconsin's volunteer fire and emergency medical departments are struggling to attract and retain new volunteers. For more on the report's findings, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Rob Henkin, the president of Wisconsin Policy Forum. So y'all over at the Wisconsin Policy Forum just put out a report, and one of the top-line findings of this most recent report is that Wisconsin's volunteer fire departments are facing a tough time both attracting and retaining volunteer firefighters. Now, volunteer fire departments primarily serve a lot of rural communities. Walk me through that a little bit more. What's behind those difficulties? Sure. So really, there's um, the the vast majority of fire departments in the state of Wisconsin make at least some use of of volunteers. And these volunteers can either be volunteers in the truest sense of the word. They they don't get paid. They purely volunteer their time for, for no compensation. That increasingly is not the case, particularly for emergency medical services calls. Um, But we often refer to volunteers as folks who are essentially part-time employees who are called in and respond when they are available to a call. And that model over time has worked very well for smaller departments, largely in rural areas that have low call volumes, typically no more than one or two or three calls per day, um, because it it really can be cost inefficient to have full-time responders who are stationed at a firehouse waiting for those infrequent calls to come in. Instead, if you can maintain those robust volunteer rosters of people who are able to drop what they're doing and respond from work or home, then then that really works out well. What we are seeing increasingly, however, across the state is real difficulty maintaining those robust rosters of volunteers. And that is combining with increased call volumes, particularly on the EMS side. As populations are aging, there's a greater propensity for citizens to actually call 911 for medical emergencies. And so one of the reasons that we are seeing uh, these volunteer rosters shrink, first of all, there are volunteers who are aging out. And as younger folks are coming in behind them, there seems to be a drop in willingness to volunteer. But there's also some other uh, circumstances that are going on. 
uh, we are seeing fewer people actually working in the community in which they live. And if you are working 20 minutes away, you're not going to be able to respond as readily during the workday to a fire or EMS call in your community. Also, there's just a lot of, of extensive training, both initial training and ongoing training that is required for fire and EMS jobs, particularly for those departments that employ paramedics. And increasingly, that's something that people who want to do this on a part-time basis are simply unable to do. Now, one of the items that the report recommends, and there's a significant chunk of this report dedicated to breaking this down, is consolidation of fire and EMS departments that are having trouble with staffing, are having trouble filling out their ranks. But as you point out in the report, that's not exactly a, a cut and dry solution. Can you walk me through some of the pros and cons of that consolidation? So... We have seen the benefits of consolidation. There's a fire department in Milwaukee County's North Shore called the North Shore Fire Department, which is a consolidation of seven departments in that area. The Wisconsin Policy Forum did an exhaustive analysis and, and found some very sizable financial savings, but even more important, some, some real service level improvement. So when we think about the need for these departments to start looking at at least mixing in some full-time staffing to balance out this problem with their part-time and volunteer rosters, that's obviously very expensive. Uh, so the, the question is out there. By potentially merging with some neighboring departments and spreading the cost of that full-time staff over multiple jurisdictions, is that going to be more cost-effective for everyone? By being able to strategically deploy your staffing resources across uh, a larger geographical area, is that going to be both more cost-efficient and more effective from a service-level perspective? So there are lots of, of benefits to consolidation. Another is to be able to reduce administrative costs and, and maybe take some of those savings and redirect them into full-time staff. But all that said, oftentimes consolidation may not be the best approach. There are you know, geographical factors. Having a consolidated department that involves multiple jurisdictions over a, uh, a region uh, that is a vast geographic expanse really may not be the right solution. There are instances where neighboring communities, for whatever reason, just don't get along particularly well. And when it comes to an essential public safety service, the need to, to heavily rely on, on an arrangement with your neighbor may not be the best fit for you. So we would certainly urge communities that are facing these challenges and that have neighbors that are uh, similarly facing them, that they at least look at the notion of consolidating, but it may not be the right solution for all. I'd like to circle back around to something you said earlier in the conversation, and that is that a lot of the funding for fire and EMS services comes locally. It comes from municipalities, from the counties to an extent. Not a lot of it comes from the state. So what can the state do to help address this problem? What can lawmakers over at the state capitol do to help address this issue with recruiting and retention? So we are certainly not suggesting that, that this municipal function become a state function and that state government assume responsibility for paying uh, paramedics and emergency medical technicians and, and, and firefighters. What we are suggesting is that state assistance may be required to, to address this problem. To the extent that recruitment and retention challenges are in part at least a factor of compensation, which undoubtedly they are given the tight labor market, then the problem is, okay, how can local communities afford to pay more? Well, part of that is a political will question, but even if there is political will, 
There are state restrictions on property tax levies. There are some separate uh, but related expenditure restraint restrictions. And so one way that state assistance may be valuable would be to relax those restrictions for emergency medical services, for example. But there also are some ways where some state dollars could certainly go a long way. Um, Might some of these part-time employee recruitment and retention challenges be addressed by offering benefits? Um, and if that's the case, might there be a possibility of, of, of allowing part-time responders to, to be eligible for inclusion in, in the Wisconsin retirement system or in the Wisconsin state health plan? Uh, might there be ways that state government can help in terms of regional planning and uh, regional oversight over EMS activities uh, that could provide a benefit, but that would be something that, that perhaps in terms of staffing that local governments couldn't afford to do on their own? Could state government actually play a larger role itself in terms of setting standards and providing technical assistance to municipalities to ensure that they are all able to get up to the same level of of service. So there may be a variety of ways that state government could help. And I think one of the main messages we're sending here is that this has become a sufficiently intractable problem for local governments across the state um, and, of course, with a, uh, with, with a, a service area of, of this importance, that really it will be a necessity for state legislators and policymakers to, to get involved here. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Okay, thank you so much. Rob Hankin is the president of the Wisconsin Policy Forum. You can find a link to their full report in the online version of this interview at wortfm.org. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News. Coming up next, New Domains talks online information, misinformation. Transparency Talk gives us an open government masterclass. And Radio Chipstone examines the deeper meaning of pants. But right now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after some world headlines. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my fellow host, Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Misinformation. Now, it's one of the most vexing issues of our digital age. And the harder you try to tamp it down, the more robust it seems to become. Now, this week on New Domains, feature contributor Paul Herman examines online misinformation and a new project aimed at curtailing it. Welcome to New Domains, a series about digital culture in and around Madison. My name is Paul Hearn. Today, I'll be sharing another story behind our virtual landscape. Tackling misinformation online can feel like an insurmountable task. I know for myself, as both a citizen and a volunteer journalist, I can feel at a complete loss of where we begin in the world to tackle this problem of the digital age. Thankfully, a new study at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is looking to give tools for this problem to journalists and citizens. 
The National Science Foundation, a federal agency that funds basic research at universities, has awarded UW-Madison a $750,000 grant to research online misinformation. It will focus on misinformation about the 2020 elections, as well as COVID-19 vaccines. Mike Wagner is a professor at UW-Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication. He's the principal investigator on the grant. I spoke with Professor Wagner to learn more about the motivation and goals of this study and to find what a university study on online misinformation looks like. In brief, can you explain more on what this study is and what are its goals? Sure. Uh, Our study is motivated by what our research team sees as twin crises for democracy, Uh, the first of which is uh, a lack of confidence in the way we administer our elections as a country, and the second of which is uh, hesitancy uh, related to trusting uh, and being willing to take uh, a vaccine uh, to prevent uh, COVID-19. And so we think both of these um, issues stem from similar wells of mistrust in institutions and misinformation uh, that flows throughout our media ecology, most specifically on social media. And so what we want to do is help journalists who are reporting the verifiable truth to audiences do a couple of things. First, we want to help them identify where misinformation is percolating online, especially on social media. Then we want them to decide which of those things that they see out there do they think are most worth fact-checking. And then after they do the work to uh, discover what the verifiable truth is, We want to help them test messages that are the most likely to be successful in the communities where the misinformation is spreading. Yeah, I find this study fascinating, both as someone who's a volunteer journalist myself. This is obviously something that will be useful to us in our field. But it says in the study you're looking to support journalists, uh, developers, which I take software developers and citizens as well. Do you hope to use this beyond journalism as well? Well, we hope to help citizens, especially those who are, are spreading this information without really being aware that they're doing so, right? So, so we don't think that, that we have any especially keen insights to change the hearts of people who would willingly spread disinformation, like the people who are just making stuff up and sharing it. We're probably not going to persuade those folks. But we can help people who go onto Twitter, go onto Facebook, hop onto Reddit, or, or watch a YouTube video because they're honestly curious about an important issue and have maybe trouble discerning between legitimate information and uh, systematically uh, produced uh, misinformation. And so what we want to do is be able to help citizens figure out what to trust, and we want to do that by putting them in, in the direct line of of work that uh, journalists, especially those who engage in kind of the fact-checking work. I, I read you'll be using this three-step method to first identify, then test, and then finally correct the real-world instances of online misinformation. First, to identify. From what I gathered, you're using computer technology to find social media posts and accounts that are spreading misinformation. Could you explain this technology, this method you're using more? Sure. Um, We are trying to engage in the use of, of, of something that's called multimodal signal detection. And so what we're really interested in are phrases, uh, keywords, memes, videos, images uh, that are sharing 
things that are not true about uh, the 2020 U.S. presidential election, for example, or things that are not true about COVID vaccines. We want to then look at the networks uh, that that those messages are connected to. So who's seeing these messages? And so this requires quite a lot of uh, computational uh, social science chops. And so we're partnering with people who are computational social scientists uh, at Georgia State University, and then also with folks uh, here at the UW uh, in, in Madison to help us with that first phase of identifying um, stuff, whether it be words, uh, audio, video, memes, um, anything that might be sharing uh, known words and phrases that are connected to misinformation about elections or, or COVID vaccines. So then the next step is the testing. What does a lab test of vaccine misinformation or election misinformation even look like? Um, what we would do w- would be we would vary. So for, for the first mm-hmm. thing that happens is journalists figure out what the verifiable truth is. And then we vary the presentation of that message, right? So, for example, lab test research has shown that labeling a story as a fact check can improve people's ability to come away from reading that story by knowing what's true. Because just simply labeling something as a fact check increases our motivation as readers to get things right. And so what we want to be able to do is test different presentations of a message to see how likely are they to be effective on the the population that's actually sharing and reading and spreading uh, the misinformation. So if if stories can be written in a way that um, kind of meet people in the way that they like to think and, and, and highlight their own particular personal values as things that are important, it might make the the vegetables, if you will, the, the verifiable truth, easier to, to swallow. The final step then to correct the misinformation, uh, you said you'll be to- deploying intervention through ads, influencers, and bots. Why those three methods? What will that look like? Well, some research shows that kind of flooding the zone with a message can be an effective way to have that message get sticky uh, in social media circles. And so bots are a cheap way of doing that. They can just you know, promote messages on social media, and you don't have to have people doing it. Um, and then buying ads will help us be able to target the communities where the misinformation is flowing. So we can buy ads that say, we want them to be shown to people with these particular features, um, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or, or something like that. And so that way, we can more effectively target places where misinformation might be percolating. And then the third with influencers is that a lot of research suggests that people are most open to fact checks from people they know and trust. And so by trying to find folks in those communities who can share these messages and and see if they're willing to um, start a conversation, we think we'll be more successful. So while this study is in the works, what are actions you think can be taken now uh, to combat misinformation? I think uh, from from a citizen perspective, when you see information on social media that makes you feel really good because it's either praising someone you like politically or attacking someone you don't like. Uh, Before you share that, see if you can't find that information from a second source. Um, That, I think, would cut down on a lot of the sharing of of misinformation. In terms of journalists, um, I think it's really important to think about the audience when you're trying to engage in the reporting of the verifiable truth, right? And so, how do you write stories that still accomplish the goals of journalism while also speaking to the audience that needs this information the most, which are the people who are currently believing things that aren't true about the topic you're reporting on? And so I think thinking about those things 
um, every day uh, is is something that would be useful for journalists to do. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining me for uh, WRT. You bet. My pleasure. You can hear an extended version of our interview in our online version of the story. Thank you for listening to New Domains. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Paul Herman. Every other Thursday, our producer Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice. Please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Jonah, I'm doing good. Do you like winning? I do love winning, Tom. It is the thing I love more in life than anything else. That's not true. But let's say for the sake of this argument, I do. Why do you ask? Because we've been winning a lot here at the Wisconsin Transparency Project, and I figured it was time to kind of update everybody on what we've been doing. Yeah, let's run through some of your more recent victories with our segment today. Looking forward to diving in a little bit more into these and uh, what they mean for the broader listening community. Let's start out here. It was a Court of Appeals victory. Let me know if I get this name wrong. Mistel versus Elmbrook. Did I get that right? Yeah, Elmbrook School District. So Elmbrook had a vacancy on their school board, and they they appoint somebody uh, for the vacancy before an election is held. And so my client, Sherry Mestel, made a record request, very simple. She wanted to see the applications for the eight people who applied for the job. Not that complicated. But the school district denied a lot of the requests. They refused to turn over three of the applications saying, oh, those are non-final applicants. We don't have to turn those over. And then they they redacted a whole bunch of information from the rest of them. So Sherry sued, and unfortunately, the Waukesha County Circuit Court dismissed the whole case. We thought that was completely wrong, so we appealed. And turns out the Court of Appeals largely agreed with us, and they reversed on three of the four claims, so reinstating that lawsuit as to those claims. So walk me through. So three of the four claims, Court of Appeals reversed decision on three of the four. Walk me through the three that ultimately got reversed. Number one, the court ruled that non-final applicants, their applications must be released unless they request confidentiality in writing. So Elmbrook had argued uh, that it doesn't matter whether or not they request confidentiality, but the court said, no, it's what the statute says they only get confidentiality if they ask for it. It's not automatic. Number two, there is a statutory exception in the open records law for the home contact information of public employees and elected officials. The court ruled here that that exemption does not apply to applicants because they are not yet employees or elected officials. And number three, it also ruled that that exception does not apply to the professional contact information because one of the applicants or actually the successful applicant who did become a public official had included his contact information block, his email signature block from his workplace, and they redacted that. And the court said, you can't do that. And then moving on to another victory you had recently regarding some property complaints. Uh, give me the details on that, Tom. Take us a, take us on to a deep dive on that one. 
Yeah, this one is from Milwaukee County, and there we had a court ruling that a municipality cannot enact an entire policy that provides a blanket exemption from the records law for itself. So what they try to do is they, they, they passed a, a, a local ordinance or local resolution saying we are never going to turn over the names of people who file property complaints. So my neighbor's lawn is too long. This, this guy has a bunch of cars in his yard, that kind of stuff. Court ruled that the public has a right to know who is filing all these complaints about those kind of things. That's wild. So now I can know I don't have a house, but let's say in this hypothetical situation, if somebody files a formal complaint about the length of my grass, I can figure out who that is under this ruling. Yeah. Court says that if government is or rather if if, if people are asking government to take punitive action against people, the public gets to know who's making those requests. So that is not secret information. Moving right along here, we got a few other lawsuits that were settled. I count one, two and Three. Tell me about those three cases. Yeah, three lawsuits settled in the last month or so, uh, all in our favor. One was for the severance agreement for a police officer. Turned out the police officer had been uh, issued an OWI across uh, across the border. This was in La Crosse. So it was across the border in Winona in Minnesota. And the police officer resigned before there was an investigation. And the police department had initially denied the request for this information, these records, and we filed a lawsuit and they agreed to turn over those records without any further ado. Number two here, law firm billing records. Those are public records. This is very common request to to see how much are these lawyers charging the taxpayers via the, the government contracts that they have. And this was not one that they had denied, but they were delaying responding and providing these records and claiming, well, our law firm's really busy. We have lots of clients and lots of um, lots of other work to do. We'll get to it later. And we sued and said, yeah, that's not good enough. You, you can't just say, especially the, the law firm can't say, well, we're going to we're not going to do what our clients are telling us to do because we're too busy. The, the, the client, the, the county in this case, had an obligation to turn these records over as soon as practicable and without delay. And a law firm being busy isn't an excuse not to do that. Number three, settled a lawsuit here where the school district superintendent and board emails had been sought. And this is a very strange one where the, the requester, my client, just made a basic request, like I want to see emails with a ha- handful of search terms in them. Uh, let's see what's in them. And the custodian, who is the superintendent of this school district, said, well, it's going to be really expensive and just stop there. And my client asked, well, how expensive? And also, you're running email searches. That doesn't take very long. They didn't respond. This And this happened for four different record requests. So we filed a lawsuit and said, you can't do that. And shortly after we filed the lawsuit, they turned over the records and they're paying attorney fees. We've run out of time for today's episode, unfortunately. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks for taking a minute out of your day to chat with me. Always a pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Eric Ford is the gallery preparator for the Center for Design and Material Culture at UW-Madison. He's also a collector of stories. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Ford tells Jennifer Fields about the object he uses to keep some of his favorite stories close. Objects that we show in in our gallery, they need, you know, the proper exhibition uh, standards. They have to be in in the best light, if you will. What other concerns do you have? Because I know it can be a laundry list depending on, because we're right now in the textile gallery. You primarily work for the textile gallery at the CDMC. So what is it, it that textiles need in particular that we may not find in other galleries? Uh, well, textiles are uh, really uh, precious objects, and we've, we have a huge collection of, uh, what, like 23,000 objects, I believe our whole collection is. And they all require uh, specific needs in terms of um, exhibition prep. They need specific lighting needs. Uh, some need covered and protected. Uh, light is a really big factor, uh, so it doesn't uh, degrade any of the materials. So lighting needs are very important. Um, and we also have to even pay attention to how long it is um, after we paint our walls to install our objects. Just based on off-gassing, uh, paint has to sit for a month before we can put any historic object in it. Uh, just based on uh, like the gas levels that come off of paint. I'm looking at you like you're crazy because I have never heard that before in my life. Mm -hmm. I paint something and the minute it's dry. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to wait a full month uh, before we can install any historic object, especially like inside vitrines, uh, anywhere where that gas is trapped. Uh, we have to ventilate our galleries for a really long time um, before we can put any historic work in there. And, and speaking of paint, the whole reason why we're talking about this is that I have this fascination with the evidence of work, like the hand of the maker. And like the biggest evidence of your work is on your body. So talk to me about your britches, Eric. Absolutely. Uh, it's funny because we talked about this. Uh, you randomly brought up uh, my overalls, which is, um, it's kind of a staple of, of my identity here. I, I mean, I just like overalls in, in general. Um, but they've kind of become part of my image. Um, I wear, you know, the same painter white overalls uh, all the time, every day, you know, and they show each and every bit of work I do in some capacity, from the random paint drop to the rip that happened three years ago when I was moving that piece of metal that cut my leg, you know. Think of your, your overalls, as I like to call them britches. Mm -hmm. Think of your britches as a document of how all this came to be, because they're white with blues and reds and yeah. patches and sewing. And so talk to me about the history of this garment using the, the stains or the, I shouldn't say the stains, but the colors as markers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's evidence all over. I mean, my painter whites are not really white. They're uh, pretty much every color I've used on pretty much any wall I've painted in the past three years since I got them. Um, like I can point, you know, on this seam on my left leg, that's a little bit of spray foam from my studio back when I was in grad school. Uh, and I also have a blood stain that's uh, just above my pocket. I tend to store things in my pockets. So very often do I have uh, like streaks going into my pockets, especially the front pocket. Uh, the front pocket is also kind of a catch-all 
uh, for all of like my finger wiping. Like I wiped my hands on my overalls, you know. I used my stomach almost like a, a press board and just kind of smeared all over, you know. And it's so funny um, because my partner will ask me and mention like, oh, it looks like you painted something blue today because that's the new more, most vibrant color on my pants. And I did, you know. So it's it's interesting watching and like seeing people catch on to what I'm doing just based on what I'm wearing. Um, and all the rips and everything, I, I am, a, am a fixer, I'm a maker, um, and I have attachments to objects, uh, very much so. So like uh, the importance of like fixing my pants so that I can continue to wear them so I don't have to get rid of them and hurt my own feelings doing that uh, are really important, but they're getting kind of bad. <laughs> so then if I point to this color red, what is that red from? That's from painting the stripe in the uh, the Ruth Davis Design Gallery um, in the uh, federal home uh, section of the uh, exhibition, and it's just we painted some stripes uh, to demarcate uh, locations that separate the space, um, and that is a let's see, I think it's actually called Federal Red, uh, so I can even name the name the color on my pants. Okay, let me see if I can, this is funny because I'm staring at your pants. Okay, what is this? Is that a red or a pink? That is a red. It's washed out. Uh, so it has all the evidence of me scraping there. So like, uh, I can even, I mean, if you want some ASMR, you know, I have, there's so much paint like built up on this corners, like these two corners of my pockets that I could actually peel it back and find evidence of painting you know, that I did a few years ago. And that red used to be more vibrant, like the one on my leg you were just talking about. But over time, I, you know, keep scraping, you know, white paint or spackle or whatever I'm using. It always goes in the same spot. So it's kind of like layering that evidence of that work. So you talked, Eric, you, you said that you have an attachment to objects. You have an attachment to these overalls, these britches. They've got patch marks, they got repairs. When do you call it? And then what happens to them when you call I can see this is distressing you. Your eyes are getting it kills smaller. Me. It kills me to think that I might have to throw them away, but I don't. Uh, I actually keep a lot of my favorite clothing, even though they're tattered and worn. Um, all the overalls I've ever bought and, and worn that have been decommissioned sit in my bottom shelf on my dresser. Sometimes I take them out and look at them. I admire them because I really, I mean, my existence is building stories and, you know, I'm, I'm a worker at heart, you know, so being able to relive like my experiences through the things I wear is kind of a fascinating thing. And I don't know that I would ever retire them fully, um, depending on what I'm doing. Um, I wonder if you don't retire them, if you can see them having another life as another object, or is it important for you, Eric, to keep them intact? Is it important for you to be able to put them back on again and feel what you went through in creating the pants? Uh, the britches. Creating the pants. I think that's the name of our segment. <laughs> creating the pants. Creating the pants. Um, I, I, don't, I have thought about mounting them, you know, and showing them as kind of evidence of work, as kind of a performative, you know, past performance that has taken place over a couple of years. But I quite like the idea of being able to kind of, there's, a, there's an experience from like opening the drawer and admiring and like putting them on and be like, yeah, they definitely still are 
exactly how I remember, you know, all the clumps between my legs that I sewed together and they've ripped and re-sewn and all that is still there. And uh, I always put my foot through a, a rip in my <laughs> knee and make the, make the rip bigger naturally. And um, yeah, I would... I really like the idea of, of keeping objects, uh, especially clothing that I can put back on. Like I still have a shirt that I, I bought probably 15 years ago that I've done pretty much everything in and it's virtually see-through now and it's got more holes than Swiss cheese and uh, I can't get rid of it. My partner says like, when are you gonna throw that shirt away? And I was like, never. And if you do it without asking me, uh, I won't be very happy. <laughs> I'm just very attached to it, you know? It's like one of the comfiest shirts I ever wore, you know? And these are some of my favorite overalls I've ever owned, you know? Just based on how much I've done in it, how much, how many stories they hold. For WORT, I'm Jonathan Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonifer Fields, Tom Kamenick, and Paul Herman. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to get all of WORT's local news updates in our podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. Say it with me. W-O-R-T, Massive.